Hey everyone, this is Christopher Luxon, the former CEO of Air New Zealand. This is John Lee Dumas, the founder and host of Entrepreneurs on Fire. This is Tracy Ibarra. I'm an executive solutions at Dell Technologies. This is Travis Chappell, founder of Build Your Network. If you are wanting to learn how to embrace change, to navigate through disruption as a leader, then listen to the Leadership is Changing podcast. The Leadership is Changing podcast. The Leadership is Changing podcast with my good friend, my very good friend, Dennis Giannoutsos. Welcome to Leadership is Changing. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change. This is taking your leadership to another level by finding the balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsos. Thanks so much, Dennis. Really enjoy having the opportunity to be on your show and with your audience. It's always exciting to talk about these things and and really share, you know, ideas and things together and and be part of it. So thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. And Patrick, whereabouts are you in the world today? So I'm in a place called Niles, Michigan, which is known as the Midwest part of the United States. For those that are familiar with the big city like Chicago, it's due east about an hour and 20 minutes. Cool. And have you always, is that where you originate from? Is that where you grew up as well? Actually, I grew up in New Jersey, New York area and lived there the first 21 years of my life and actually ended up in the Midwest by going to play college basketball and met my future wife there. And Mm. she wanted to settle in the Midwest. So we made sure we did that. Yeah. Good idea. Yeah. Very good. And so the other thing too I wanted to ask you was about the the book. So create forever teammates. What's it about? Yeah, I wrote the book, Dennis, because in my observations, either through the corporate experience that I have or my coaching experience, I noticed some things around this overstatement or over focus on what I call extrinsic outcomes, meaning what are the performance measures? What are the skill development? What are the end results that we're we're getting and that we're so focused on achieving? And how is that affecting, for lack of a better term, the human side of things, the relationships, the connections? And is there something more that we should be paying attention to that would develop an experience for people that would be more joyful, more passionate, more purposeful, more in line with that there's a bigger picture than just those outcomes and results. And I do believe that there's there's many things that have changed that have in fact harmed the ability to have a deeper connection and relationships. And so I wrote the book to try to get us back there, to try to find ways to integrate some tenets and lessons that we could use in the current culture we're in to bring that same kind of powerful experience to those coworkers, leaders, and athletics. Wow, that's awesome. Do you know that many years ago, probably about 30 years ago, I read some books from some basketball and other coaches as well, and they talked about one thing being in particular about the teammates actually knowing each other really well. 
not just their names, but, you know, can you name who their father is or can you name whatever and a few other things? Is that still relevant today as part of that relationship building and understanding each other? Do we need to know each other or do we just get on with our lives and know that that's Joe Bloggs over there or that's Sally over there and we just have to keep on going? What, what do you think nowadays? Well, I think it's imperative that we continue to work on making sure it's much more than just the results and the outcomes and that relationships and that connection. And I love how you stated it's, I use the word intimacy when I work with the people I work with in the, in the workshops and this word of intimacy, meaning intimacy, which means I know your father-in-law, which I know, I know you at a deeper level. And as a result of that connection that we have with, with each other, the, the success I would like to to see you achieve is something that's more exciting to me, more interesting to me, because I'm not so self-absorbed and I'm building all of those intimate relationships in a way that a byproduct of it is so much more of a powerful experience and performance that it gets us to the fullest capacity or fullest potential of what we're able to execute. It's a wonderful fuel that if time is spent on it, and that's the biggest challenge is, is there time to spent on these soft skills, on these intrinsic spirit and connection skills? Is there really going to be some results as a result of a trusting that that's part of building a powerful team? And fear, fear, if I may real quickly, fear, Dennis, is what distracts us from us. Fear of not getting the results, fear of the numbers, of the outcomes, and that if we don't spend all our time honing our craft, become very good at what we do, then we're going to lose out. We're going to fall behind. But if we really take a step back and say, what does that human element contribute? How important is it? And time and time again, it shows that when we spend time on that, it gets us to a whole different level of performance, but as importantly, brings a whole different level of joy to the experience. Wow, that's awesome. So listeners, look at that. Straight away, bang into it. And we're getting some awesome insights here from Patrick as well and, and his thoughts around teams and around leadership and the way that we work and particularly around skills. I actually did an interview with another gentleman called Phil Holden, uh, Patrick, here in New Zealand, and he's a chairman of some boards and so forth. And he talked about the soft skills are actually hard skills. And in other words, you know, they're important, but they're actually the ones that are going to really help us, but not always easy to do. And so I'm glad what you're just sharing there with us. And that sounds like the book as well really helps people understand it a little bit more. But it's really, really important that we actually pay attention to do to it and do something with it. Absolutely. And, you know, when I talk to people who are working in this kind of environment and culture, you know, a lot of what I hear now, it's not everybody, Dennis, but there's a big enough percentage of people that what I hear from them is, you know, that their experience is more dr drudgery than it is hmm. fun that there's this lack of a whole bunch of different things that are occurring, lack of trust, lack of this sense of being included and belonging and a lack of really just having any kind of connection to the people within the organization or on the athletic team that would give them a reason to want to contribute at a different level. And so and then there's other challenges as new generations come into the workforce. They want more from the experience. They believe it or not, Dennis, they want a more balanced life. They want to tap into 
what else is important? What's in the bigger picture about my whole experience and who I am as a person? Not only in being you know, a very strong leader, not only being very dedicated to my craft, not only becoming very skilled, but there's other parts of my life that are very important to me. And those other parts of their lives have to do with a lot of family. It has to do with friends. It has to do with connections. It has to do with you know, this human element. Now, these as leaders are things we have to be paying attention to. If we're going to keep the most talented people, if we're going to keep the most powerful performers, these are the things that we need to begin to adjust to. And I know for me that it's this you know, industrial age mindset is what I call it or refer to it that we operated under for a long, long time. And it served us very well. It served us very well. However, things are changing. They're already in flow. This worker, this teammate wants to have collaboration, co-creating. They want to have this inclusion. They want to have all these things. There's guardrails to it. It's There's things and disciplines that have to remain in place. But overall, as leaders, it requires emotional intelligence. It requires a whole bunch of skill sets that maybe we're not so used to, or we have to develop ourselves as leader, which becomes very discomforting because that's not how we're used to leading. But this workforce is demanding it from us. So it's really exciting to me. And I, I love the fact of learning and growing. And as a leader, how do I need to change? What fears am I willing to face? You know, how am I be able to look at my shortcomings and, and things of that nature and become a more powerful influencer and motivator? Because as leaders, that's our primary job. How are we influencing and motivating? We need to know where our people are in respect to the space they're in and the present time they're in and the shoes that they're walking in and how they see things differently. So I know I've gone on a little bit there, but it's but it's all those things. Yeah, it's brilliant. Well done. Thank you for sharing. I think they're wonderful things. And fear is a big one that actually holds a lot of people back. I mean, they're not happy at work and they're not they don't like it because it's not they're not being treated well or there's all sorts of things going on, but they don't go. Why? Because of the fear of not getting another job and am I ever going to do this? And can I can I succeed in another role? And is the grass really greener on the other side? So there's a lot of things that go on through people's minds. And those six inches between our ears, wow, they, that processes a lot of things, right, for a lot of people. Mike, g'day. Thank you so much for having me here. It's a true pleasure. And whereabouts are you in the world today? Today I'm in Taipei, all the way up there in Taiwan. So just a couple of islands north of your islands. Just my- <laughs> And a little bit south of uh, Japan, <laughs> about... And how long have you been there since you last got out of there? I mean, with COVID and all that sort of stuff, how long have you been in, in Taipei? We've been on lockdown here for two and a half years. And I think we've got about four local cases of COVID at the moment. And we're all panicking. We're panicking over four cases, which is lovely. <laughs> because for me, I, I don't like to leave the island. I like to stay here. It's too good to me. Sounds like New Zealand because, you know, we had one case. Whoop, we're in lockdown, massive lockdown. And then things start to go from there. But um, it's amazing how different people are panicking or different countries. But it's also amazing how people are handling fear at the moment, because I think it's actually causing a lot of fear. Are you seeing that in your country as well? Taiwanese are very fearful uh, to start with. There's huge panic. So before the pandemic, we'd always wear masks because we live in close proximity. Now, to gauge the proximity in Sydney, where I'm from, just in the northwest in Penrith, you know, we might be um, 600 people per square kilometre in terms of population density. In my area, I'm 
8,000 people per square kilometre. And just a little bit further up the road in Taipei, it gets up to 24,000 head per square kilometre. So we're very mindful of how fast disease spreads through a community. So we're very vigilant. <laughs> I'm afraid of my wife, so there's a lot of fear here. But the fear does lead to some good protective mechanisms for the entire community, not just for the self. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Good to know because, you know, like I think that's one fortunate thing that we've had here in New Zealand is that we're not living as close to each other as some other countries are. And uh, we sort of need to be a little bit more spread out. I think Australia's even closer than New Zealand is, but at least Australia's better than where you are, right? Would that be true? Well, we tend to live in towers here. So the tower that I live in is 15 storeys high, and then there's six towers on one complex. So if it's going to spread, it's going to spread fast. And if I look out at my office window, if I sneeze, I could sneeze into the next door neighbour's bathroom. Now, I'm not saying my place is small. It's considerably large compared to others, but it's just the proximity is so close. And it's packed, so we've got to be mindful here. He said sneeze. He didn't say he can see into the, the neighbor's bathroom. It was sneezing that he was talking about there, but you <laughs> yeah, makes... don't want to look. No. <laughs> so, Daniel, you, you used to look after about, well, headed up an area which was an Emirates Airlines, 17,000 crew. I wonder what they have gone through in the last couple of years, in particular with COVID and that. I mean, I'm glad to be out of that kind of space. Re- really glad to be out of it. I look at my colleagues and for them, there were so many people who wanted to leave before the pandemic. Um, Flying and being cabin crew is very toxic on the body. And so it's very easy to get sick. I remember flying when we had the swine flu outbreaks and I flew into China and our aircraft got grounded then. And they brought on the medical team. They had the hazmat suits back on. They scanned everybody's temperature. And I remember one customer on the aircraft they had a high temperature. So what they did, they quarantined the row in front of that person, that row and the row behind, and everybody was taken and put in quarantine back then. Now, on the aircraft, if there was a communicable disease going around, you would catch it. And I have been on aircrafts where we've had up to 14 cases of communicable diseases on one aircraft. And it got to the stage where we feared that the captain had got the disease. So we were planning to divert and to do an emergency landing. So in that environment, it's toxic to begin with because you're at 40,000 feet and disease spreads fast in that vacuum environment, but also at toxic for those people who are having to do service-related jobs where they're touching things with uh, urine, feces, spit, all of that. So yeah, it's tough and it's tough for them. Their work role has totally changed. They look like hazmat cabin crew now. Yeah, I'm amazing what they've gone through. And the whole tourism industry worldwide just suffered big time. And you've just got to take your hat off to those guys. I mean, the way that they've actually now starting to bounce back, which is going to be really great to see happen over the next few years and just be able to travel. Although you and I actually have really enjoyed coaching in our own lounges or our own offices at home. And so I don't know if I want to travel yet, but uh, I think, you know, for a guy who traveled with HP around the world, one year in particular, 40 weeks I traveled. and there was all economy class because, you know, it was, there was a policy. I thought we'd travel, but I always used my points to try and upgrade into a premium economy at least. But still, as you said, it's a big toll on your body. And it's a bit like people today who say to me that they're on conference calls and global roles or regional roles and they're doing stupid hours. And they go, what was it like for you when you were doing that kind of stuff? I mean, well, I feel like I was on constant jet lag. And I think for a lot of our listeners today, they're probably feeling that as well, that they're on constant jet lag. And I think one big 
thing that helped me around jet lag, or two things actually, was sleep, of course, and number two was getting out there in the sun to get our vitamin D. 100%. I remember pre-COVID, I was traveling not as much as you, but I would get sick for two weeks for every time I traveled. So if I went from, say, Taiwan to Sydney, I wouldn't sleep for 36 hours because I'd stay up all day. I might travel business class, but I can't sleep on the aircraft. And then I get there, then I'm awake till 11 or 12 that night. And what I'd find is I'd be sick for two weeks every time I traveled. So for me, travel ended up losing that joy because I was always sick. And then when I'd go to Dubai and then all the way to the UK again, I'd be sick. I wouldn't sleep for a week whilst I was there. And then by the time I came back and got into a normal routine, it took me three weeks to get back into shape. And so today, uh, would I love to do it again? I'd love the fantasy of doing it. But what I love is coming to my office with my tracksuit pants on and my Birkenstocks. So if you want to hire me and you're happy to have me in Birkenstocks and tracksuit pants, then I'm coming. But if not, <laughs> I'm going to stay right here. Yeah, sorry about that. I'm not available. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> tell us a bit more about your background in the sense of the competitive sports side of things. A champion wakeboarder and extreme games competitor. What was that like? It was difficult and it was a lot of fun. And it's a, a dichotomy because on the way to becoming an Australian champion athlete, it only took me about 21 years to achieve that goal. So I started water skiing at age five, and then eventually I got to the peak when I was 26. And wow. throughout that journey, it was a big learning of both understanding my body and also understanding my mindset. So the big obstacles I had to overcome was I had uh, knees that used to collapse. I had hips that have actually taken me 41 years to get correct because they've always clicked and the ligaments never joined properly. It's taken me 41 years to fix that. And then I had two major knee operations. Six guys tried to kill me and I had to learn to ride with plates, metal plates in the arm. So to get my goal, there was all of these obstacles on the way. And I wanted the goal, so I had to learn how to overcome the obstacles. So I think my first major obstacle was I was training at age 14, and I was trying a new trick. And when you're 14, you kind of bend. You don't tend to break. But I did a flip on the wakeboard, and my foot came out of the boot. And the board smacked me right up under the bottom part of the nose near the nostrils. And it just pushed the bone straight out of the skin of the nose. So I had this blood squirting everywhere. My eyes went black instantly. I couldn't breathe through my nose for about a month. And then we had to fly to Fiji for holidays not long after that. So I had to go through that. And then once I had that first accident, then the fears started to kick in. So I remember that was kind of the turning point. Before that, I didn't have any fear. But then at 14, instead of focusing on doing the trick and landing it successfully, I would come into the trick and I'd doubt and second guess myself. And as soon as I hit the wake, I'd say to myself, am I going to land this? I think I'm going to crash. And then these mental blocks really got in the way of riding really well. And I knew that that was the turning point and everything seemed to go downhill from there. Although my skill set was getting better, the fears and the doubts kept getting bigger. And it was always, am I going to try and crash? Am I going to crash and burn? Am I going to crash and break? And then it really changed my focus and led to some major accidents after that. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership is Changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change, inspiring executives and leaders to adapt and lead a bigger game in a fast-moving world.